Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Electric Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. Today we're going to talk about landscape architecture and its vital role in city building, city life, and urban design. With me is Alyssa North, an Associate Professor of Landscape Architecture at the Daniels Faculty of Architecture, Landscape, and Design at the University of Toronto. Alyssa is also a partner with her husband, Peter North, in North Design Office. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Jeremy. Before we get into landscape architecture and its impact on our cities, I'm curious to know how you like to define landscape architecture, only because there's probably lots of people out there who are less familiar with the profession and might assume it only has to do with plants and green space. So how would you define landscape architecture? Uh, The simplest way I like to define it is thinking that it has to do with the design of any exterior space. Um, That's the absolute simplest version, Um, but uh, I mean, uh, also thinking about scales plays into that quite a bit as well. Um, A lot of people understand that landscape architects do residential design, but this can go all the way up to the regional scale and thinking of um, large scale systems such as uh, our ravine system and types of involvement with that. So, um, you know, the idea of how, you know, how big or how small really comes into play with that, but, uh, you know, it's... It, it becomes a little bit of a difficult question in terms of urban designers also think of outdoor space, but maybe outdoor space more in relation to architecture and landscape, whereas the landscape architects are specifically looking at outdoor space. Then how has the, well, first of all, how long has the profession been around, landscape architecture, and how has it evolved to where we are today? Right, great questions that probably a historian should be answering. Um, But uh, the discipline sort of in its um, configuration with the name landscape architecture is um, really credited to Frederick Law Olmsted. So we would be looking at this discipline as um, over 100 years old, like just over 100 years old in in North America with that title. Um, You know, of course, we can go back much further and look at the types of work that um, people were doing even in antiquity that may have been doing similar practices that landscape architects do today. Um, But under that title in North America, it really is about 100 years old. it's, I, I think it's a fascinating question to think about how the discipline has changed over time because I'll uh, often go back and, and read the works of Olmsted and it's almost like the same issues that were happening in urbanity are very similar and the agenda that landscape architects are trying to push are almost the same agendas that you know we're still trying to push today. Um, so from that perspective, I think it's quite interesting. But I think what has really progressed in terms of landscape architecture and why it's really grown as a discipline and it's a really in-demand discipline right now um, is the fact that uh, it's a discipline that's really needed because of our, our, our contemporary global conditions. So the idea that landscape architects can um, conceptualize cities in terms of green infrastructure and work on brownfield regeneration projects, um, even at a residential scale to be you know working with um, native vegetation and really thinking about how smaller components to, can fit into a bigger 
ecological vision for our cities um, to deal with our issues of flooding and climate change. Um, all of those, you know, really come into play in terms of allowing our cities to function into a future that is going to be habitable for humans. So is it that kind of uh, pressure that's placed on urban environments or some of the the experiences we've had like flooding and, and other um, events that have um brought greater attention to the profession? That, that's what I, I think I think that's part of it, absolutely. I think it's that um, the successes have started to prove um, the necessity of the discipline in a way. So, um, you know, a, uh, a lot of this work that had to do with protecting cities from flooding um, was under the purview of engineers. And those were, you know, very specific solutions that had to do with, you know, getting water as quickly as possible from point A to point B. And that was was um, who was doing that type of work and um, uh, you know it, it's it's not fair to say that landscape architects took over that work because engineers are also moving into green infrastructure work um, but I think the idea that the landscape architect is able to understand um, the principles of green infrastructure and also take into account social factors and ecological factors and really right. have the broad understanding um, has allowed you know the discipline to sort of flourish in a viable way. So you mentioned Olmsted. You mentioned that you go back and you look at the work he's done. I'm curious, what is it that still resonates today? Right. So um, he he you know he worked a lot in Boston and he worked on um, setting up the emerald necklace um, structure. Uh, he spoke a lot about. Um, the difference between native plants and non-native plants and when it made sense to use those and those are sort of it's those types of arguments that are you know wh where do we need green belts in our city where are they going to be happening um, what's the value of those what are the connected systems is society valuing these things or not um, you know the arguments against native versus non-native um, you know those still come up uh, within the discipline um, so it's sort of it's almost like it's an agenda that maybe hasn't quite been resolved and until you know the pressures of necessity are placed on society that maybe um we we won't though the, they will continue to be debates maybe you can just tell me the kinds of projects that the students are working on these days maybe projects that you may not have worked on when you were a student and what are the kind of projects that they get excited about Right. Um, <laughs> that might be a question. The excitement factor might be a question better asked to the students. Uh, but I can I can outline sort of how we set up the the pedagogy at the University of Toronto, um, and we're we're really looking at um, introducing students to uh, you know really basic concepts in the first year that then they can apply at a small scale, um, and we do have to jump through the scales fairly quickly. So um, first year is you know basic ideas about um, path and program and circulation and social issues and basic concepts about ecology. Um, I think what's very different from when I was a student is right away we need to jump into ideas of process, how things change over time, um, knowing that that's really important for, you know, viability and health of cities, both ecologically and socially. Um, and then, uh, and also the digital tools that they have at their disposal to be able to work through those problems um, at the various scales. Um, then we start moving into um, bigger questions of um, slightly larger scale sites and looking at, um, we actually have uh, an a super studio that we call where all 
disciplines come together. So we have architecture, landscape architecture, and urban design um, that work on a common problem in the city. And then each discipline is sort of working, um, you know, within their lens. We try and, you know, organize teams where there's, a, there's you know, one or more of each um discipline and then they work through the problem but they bring their disciplinary expertise to work in a more collaborative way so I think that idea of collaboration is also something through the disciplines that wasn't um, as much um, in the past this is something that I think we're understanding we need to educate our students to work in these multi um, disciplinary teams because they're bigger problems that we're tackling and so to give them those tools of negotiation but also knowing where their expertise you know has value and where they have um, influence in team decisions is quite important Um, and then we move to a regional scale um, where you know they really are looking at bigger systems so whether it's the ravine system in the city of Toronto or um, you know resource based extraction industries up north like what you know what agency does a landscape architect have in terms of GIS mapping to influence what large GIS mapping? Uh, uh, geographic information system mm-hmm. mapping where they have um, you know l- where they can have big decisions over large territories um, and so how can the view of the landscape architect that understands you know social environmental um, multiple layers of history and different voices you know how can that you know, type of mapping allow us to understand the bigger system. And then in their final year, we ask students to do an independent thesis study. Um, and I think what's interesting to see that in terms of change over time are the the changes in the topics. So right now, students are really looking at issues of, you know, the oil sands, um, that questions that have to do with climate change. Um, they're looking at First Nations questions in terms of um, clean water. Um, they're looking at uh, social equality issues and um, food security and types of questions that really do kind of indicate, you know, pressing global concerns. So not just at the urban city level, um, they have to be cognizant of what's happening on a broader scale. Um, but perhaps bring that down, bring that back down to the the urban context. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I think that's where the validity lies in that they they're looking at something that has a global impact. But how can I actually get down onto the ground and design something that will you know begin to change you know the global narrative of how we operate on the land? What are the areas where they want to make a difference? I think stu- I think uh, the students that are in school right now have a tough job because I think in a way they see the writing on the wall in terms of our global environmental condition. And we were just asking our students the other day, why are you here? Why did you come to this discipline? And they all say, you know, I came from, um, you know, a different discipline that didn't actually have an ability to make change on the ground. Um, And so I think students really see landscape architecture as an opportunity to, push uh, an agenda that's actually going to make better living conditions on on the planet. So I wanted to ask, getting into more practical applications, I'm just thinking about the parks. So starting off with more basic uh, elements of, of landscape architecture, just in the city of Toronto, there's, there's I think there's about 1,500 parks, which is phenomenal if you think about it. And I suspect some of them may be increasingly overcrowded, certainly in the in the um, higher density areas. So, how are the parks being designed today to accommodate current and future demand? 
Uh, I think our Toronto waterfront has been an excellent example of that and is, you know, globally recognized for that. So um, we're really looking at trying to find parks that accommodate large demographics that are, you know, resilient for, you know, returning crowds, you know, understanding that we have like a boom in our, in our condo populations. Um, And so how can these spaces really be multifunctional 24 seven to be able to accommodate these? Um, You know, it's absolutely not perfect. Uh, Even, even the idea of accommodating dogs within the city is, you know, a a huge challenge. Um, So I think um, the city is really looking at these types of parks to serve on those multiple levels and specifically um, with the city turning its interest to the ravines and with the ravine strategy we're now recognizing that our parks are just you know really um, reaching their their peak um, is uh, how can the ravines serve in multiple ways how can they serve as green infrastructure uh, how can they you know uh, still continue to house all our road networks our major infrastructure sewers um, all those uh, elements um, but also be inviting for um, people and inviting for people in a way that will allow people to become stakeholders in those lands so I think we're just as a city we're looking at all the available public space and seeing how can that available public space be designed um, and programmed so that it has multiple functions and that those things work together and that's the challenge how do you allow an ecologically sensitive area to have people walking through it every day. And those are challenges where landscape architects can design to allow those overlaps to happen. So the ravine strategy, um, tell me a little bit more about that. So up up until now, people have certainly enjoyed the ravines and and there are trails and accessible access points to to, um, make use of the ravine. What is what is this ravine strategy? What is it trying to achieve that we haven't achieved to date? Yeah, the ravine strategy is really an attempt to um, look at the multiple layers of of how the ravines can um, not only serve the city of Toronto residents in a more productive way, but also ensure that we don't trample to death that resource. And so it really is finding that balance between understanding this gem of a green loop system we have around our city Um, and in the past it was fine we could just ignore them people you know maybe they wandered off into the ravine use some of the trails use some of the parks but the fact is now um, people are accessing them and you know cutting through fences doing more and more so there's just more impact and so the city has to be more proactive in terms of how it um, allows people and 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 supports people to be in the ravines but also educates people on becoming stakeholders in that system and knowing their value but knowing that it's it's a balance right so now on to just some bolder projects um, that are in the city and it makes me think of recently I, I visited uh, New York I had the pleasure of visiting New York as well as Chicago earlier this year and in, in both cities I was really struck by these amazing uh, projects in Chicago Millennium Park, uh, which I think is probably the most visited uh, destination, a tourist site in Chicago. Yeah. The High Line, I think that's yeah. what they call it in New York. Also, a fantastic uh, revitalization of an abandoned piece of infrastructure. Yeah. 
And so now we in Toronto, we're, we're attempting to do the same. Uh, we have the Bentway under the Gardner, which recently opened with their, their skate trail, I think to um, great response. And then there's the Rail Deck Park, which is the big one proposed right near uh, City Place and an attempt to really stitch that whole neighborhood together. I'm, I'm wondering, are we now on the cusp of a, of, of a new and exciting era of landscape architecture? I, I believe so, absolutely. And, uh, and again, I think those examples you cite are, are perfect examples that show the strength and the validity of landscape architecture to go in for a fairly minimal investment. If you're comparing, say, you know, a park to a building investment, it's a fairly minimal investment um, that has a huge value in return that um, basically attracts uh, developers to then build the fabric that cities can no longer afford to build. So, you know, this in a way is the theory of landscape urbanism is that through um, the idea of investing in the public realm, uh, you're, the, the city is able to develop on its own accord because of this public investment that you've given to the city. And so this has now been proven again and again through examples like Millennial Park. The High Line is a huge example of that type of investment. Um, our waterfront is an example of that investment. Um, you know, even you can go back as far as the Barcelona Olympics where they made all sorts of small park investments that then allowed, um, you know, the, the, the city to build around them so um those uh that that's it's it's been proven now and that's why i think as well landscape architecture has seen this sort of growth in understanding its value because of what it does for city building that maybe um our kind of older tools of uh sort of you know more heavy-handed infrastructure or architecture we can no longer afford to build as cities so landscape architecture seems to have found the territory in which the investment aligns with city pocketbooks. You mentioned earlier about the the dwindling areas of land in which we can have public space. And now I'm curious about the intersection between landscape architecture and private developments. And there's this new acronym, or POPs, uh, privately owned, publicly accessible space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like there's more and more attention towards that as being a, an additional option uh, for public open space, even if it's on privately owned land. And other examples, the proposed development near Union Station, the CIBC, CIBC Square, where you have two high-rise office towers on either side of the rail track, and linking the two is open space. We have uh, Mervish Village. I think there's a promenade. The reimagined Galleria, that whole development at DuPont and Dufferin. The well down on Front Street. They all, there's all these proposals for promenade space. So is this something that the city is pushing for? Or are the developers starting to recognize the true value of, of these kind of open spaces? I guess the idea is that the the city is recognizing that um, the the whole way in Toronto specifically the way uh, private development and condo towers get built is they kind of 
the developers are able to push their agenda. Um, and so this is the city's way of like trying to get a little bit more back. Um, personally, I feel like these types of spaces, it's, it's fine as long as they're not taking the place of the city to be investing in truly public and open civic spaces is, is I think it's, it's, it's a fine line. I think it's, I think it's a good step that the city is basically trying to regulate what so far has been a, if I push my agenda enough and get it through the OMB and have enough dollars in my pocket, I can build whatever I want. So that effort I think is great and can be appreciated, but you wouldn't, I hope the city continues to make the bold moves of, you know, rail deck and other investments that truly are open and public. Are there any other examples you can think of that are, are bold, uh, bold, bold plans for the city or other cities in, in the GTA? I think also an interesting one is um, the Don River Valley Park. Um, and so that's the one where um, Evergreen was really interested in pushing that agenda and um, was able to get all sorts of city organizations that maybe historically didn't talk to one another as much um, to really come together to the table to understand this asset of um, from basically the north end of it being evergreen down to the waterfront, that if we look at this segment of the ravine system and designate it as park, what does that mean? And what does that, how does that allow us to now allocate resources to it? Um, and it, it, it was designated by the mayor as a park. Uh, no money has been designated to it yet, but I think the idea of conceptualizing it as a park is also kind of a very bold step towards reimagining how we can understand public spaces and capture this as a park in the city, which will then allow residents to understand it and interact with it in a very different way other than it just being the Don River Ravine. And there seems to be a real appetite for new ideas, new expressions of public space. There's not a lot of room around, so it, it, it seems that people are just looking again at the Bentway and its recent opening with the skating rink and I agree. Uh, thousands of people showing up on a very cold day. Mm-hmm. Just that alone, that little strip of, of ice surface attention, attracting so much attention, it, would, it seems to me that there is a real strong desire for more and more and more of it. Absolutely. And I, I think that's part of, um, again, it's like a, a, a public recognition and understanding and placing value on these civic spaces and understanding that they do benefit communities and societies and they make our places more enjoyable and provide us with better lifestyles and make our city safer. So all those things, I, I think I think it's the proof of the concept that has now come into popular understanding that is allowing landscape architecture to have, you know, a, a great sort of growth rate and promise as a, a career future. <laughs> Are there any examples of public space projects that you don't think succeeded? I, I may be a little bit reluctant to cite this, but I feel like um, Dundas Square falls a little bit into that category and there was huge excitement sure. about you know creating this square that would have a big impact on the BIA of Young Street and the sort of brand new public open space in 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 the city um, I think the the problems of that space um, have to do with who controls it and so it, w- it really had a lot to do with um, rules and regulations of what you could do there and not do there and it, it, it ended up being because of um, you know, the, the kind of private interest in that space that then 
in a way, um, don't allow a civic space to have a freedom that it should and could have to like truly be a place of expression in the city. And so to me, that that's been the problem of, of Dundas Square. Um, small example. A little bit of that also has to do with, you know, the investment that was a very early project in the days of cities starting to reinvest in in public space works and and so um, those types of spaces they do need maintenance they need an investment of really quality materials from the beginning and um, budgets are you know they're always cut they're always low so even the vision for what that space was supposed to be initially um, was very much transformed from the initial competition vision to what it became and all those types of things have impact and I think you see globally in the world where people are willing to make the investment um, right off the beginning and then have a plan for its maintenance a plan for like its continued life and evolution of its life those are the types of spaces that um, stay relevant and remain successful yeah that was going to be my last question how do we how do you ensure as a profession that these bold spaces that are beyond the norm remain successful not just at present but in the future money obviously is important but it sounds like you need to have a, a very good vision, a well, well-grounded vision, but you need to have constant attention, and it has to. Does it need to be flexible? Does it need to be adaptable to changing interests? And- absolutely, absolutely. Um, I I actually sort of wrote a book on this topic, um, operative landscapes, where I make exactly that that argument, where um, I say the the success of the spaces is completely dependent on that idea that the public is continually allowed to re-imprint their community needs on that space. And I think that's very, very key, is that um, we can remake parks, we can reinvest them to be relevant for a new public. Uh, But I think if you have a stakeholder group that has value but understands that they can change the value of a space or have their own imprint. So it's exactly those ideas that you're saying that if you can design a space to have adaptability and flexibility. But I mean, I would point out in that that you don't just want to design sort of a blank slate thinking like, oh, now anything can happen. You have to design it, you know, knowing that it has certain degrees of flexibility in this in a way is sort of a big question in landscape architecture right now how do you how do you allow for flexibility for unknown you know future potentials how do you design that flexibility for these unknown future potentials to possibly happen it's a it's a it's a tough thing to think about and so this is something that I think our discipline is thinking about and again through the proof of certain examples we see you know things were used in a certain way and then a, a small adjustment was made and then it could be used in a different way over time Maybe there needed to be a slight investment, but really I still believe that it's not an idea of a constant maintenance, that it's a headache for the city. It really is about getting enough people to love public spaces mm-hmm. that they become um, invested. Part in of the solution. Part of the solution, exactly. Yeah. Thanks so much for spending the time with me. Thank you. Um, to share your thoughts and ideas about the profession and the impact it's had and continues to have on, on our city region. Thanks. Thanks very much.